Beginning in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, up through Mark chapter 12, verse 40, we see Jesus engaged in public debate. This is the online forums of their day, the Twitter or any type of public communication, public debate. And we see that Jesus is masterful in public debate. And we come today to the last question that anyone dared to ask Jesus as he was teaching there in the temple. Each group has come to try to discredit, to try to make him lose face or to get him in trouble with the authorities. And each group has failed as Jesus Christ has deftly deflected or even boldly answered their questions without fear of man and with love towards God. As we see Jesus in public debate, we want to learn to be like him, to be able to be full of wisdom, full of knowledge, full of goodwill towards all, and most of all, love for God. And so may we learn from his example once again this morning. We come to a text this morning that is most important. I know that I often will talk about how important the text is that we're looking at, but by everyone's acknowledgement, not just mine, this is the very heart of religion. What are we doing here? What's the point of Christianity? What's the point of faith in God? Well, that's what Jesus is going to tell us today, and it is very profound. We begin in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and we'll take a small section today. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 to verse 34. And our outline is there for you to see that we're going to first take a look at the question and then look at Jesus' answer. And then Mark also records for us the agreement. The questioner ends up agreeing with Jesus on this answer. That's what makes this unique. And then Jesus commends the questioner. So we have a, a little bit different interaction here. Instead of the hostility that we've seen in all of the previous question and answer sessions, here we have a question from someone who is not hostile to Jesus, but is instead impressed with what Jesus has been saying and teaching and ends up in full agreement with what Jesus says. So let's take a look at it here. You follow along in your Bible. I'll read the passage for us. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So let's take a look here at the question in verse 28. The scribe, who normally is a part of a group that is hostile towards Jesus, and perhaps at some point this scribe was of that opinion. But as the scribe has been listening to the Lord Jesus Christ teaching and his interaction with the questions that have been thrown at him, he's been deeply impressed. 
And having seen that Jesus is perhaps better than he expected, wiser than he expected, he has a question. And the question, which commandment is the most important of all, is not a new question. He didn't come up with this one on the spot. But instead, this question is one that had been discussed and debated already quite a lot among the Jewish people. And Jesus' answer is actually not dissimilar to some of the answers that some of the scribes and rabbis had come up with. There's a recorded story about the rabbi Hillel, who lived between 40 B.C. and 10 A.D., so he died when Jesus was just a boy. And he said, as someone asked him, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot. You have to be pretty quick in your teaching if someone's going to be able to explain the whole law while you stand on one foot. And so, very precisely, Rabbi Hillel said, what you yourself hate, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. So, Rabbi Hillel kind of gave us the inverse of the golden rule, the golden rule negatively stated, that whatever you don't want done to you, don't do that to others. And that is a summary of all of the commandments in God's law about how we're supposed to relate to one another. Now, Jesus identifies that as the second of the greatest commandments, but not the foremost. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, when the scribe asked the question, which of the commandments is the most important, you could translate that as, which one comes first? What's foremost or what's primary? What's at the top of the list of the most important commandments of God in the Scripture? And essential to any endeavor is being able to keep first things first. And when it comes to religion, we need to be able to keep first things first. This is essential to our success. That's why this morning we are looking at a passage that is of utmost importance. Now, as I was listening to different preachers this week speak about this passage, I came across one who I thought had a very good insight, and so I'm going to go ahead and put his quote up there for you. This is a man named Daryl Ferguson. I don't know much about him except that his ministry is called Food for Your Soul, based out of Colorado. And he said several times during his sermon on this text, what we have here is the greatest person in existence taking the greatest book in existence, taking in the whole scope of it, and picking out the greatest commandment. That is pretty awesome, is it not? Can you wrap your minds around that? That the wisest person who ever lives takes the whole word of God and tells you the one thing that you need to keep foremost in your mind at all times. That if you want to live a life that is good, you want to live a life that is godly, you want to live a life that is wise, you want to live a life that is going to be fruitful and rewarding, then there's one thing above everything else that you have to keep in mind. When you start your day, when you finish your day, when you're looking forward to all the things you're going to do, you think about this commandment. At the end, when you're looking back on everything that you've done, how do you evaluate yourself and your life according to this commandment? This is the one thing that you need and that your children need. And this is the one thing that our church needs. Everything that comes out of my mouth from this pulpit, everything that is taught to the children downstairs, everything that is done here on Wednesday night, it should all be for this one main overarching purpose, that we want to keep this command above everything else, as Jesus Christ has taught us. 
the greatest person in existence, taking the greatest book ever to be written, looking at the whole scope of it, and picking out for you, highlighting for you, the one commandment that is foremost, that is greatest. Do I have your attention? I hope so. This is vital. This is of greatest importance. Now, everything in the Bible, of course, is important. All of God's commands are weighty, but this is the most important, the most weighty of all that God has ever said. And it all hangs on this. What a treasure to have in our Bibles. God didn't have to give us this. He could have left this out and left it for us to figure it out. But he made it explicit. He made it clear. He made it easy. Here it is. Highlight it, underline it, memorize it, live it. This is your life. This is the most important. So let's take a look then at Jesus' answer. He quotes from the book of Deuteronomy, which is known as the Shema. Because the first word here, when it says in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, here, is the Hebrew word Shema. And so the Shema was a famous passage among the Jews. History records for us, outside of the Bible, that the devout Jew would recite the Shema as a prayer, as a confession of faith, every morning and evening. And that this had been done among the Jews since the second century before Christ. So this is not an unexpected or unusual passage to bring out. It's one that had already been recognized, already been seen to be of great importance among God's commandments. So let's show that it was a part of their daily worship. Now, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, the question has to be asked, why this one? Why is this the most important commandment out of all of the commandments that God has given to us? All of the commandments that God has given to us for our good, to govern our lives, to teach us right from wrong, to keep us on the path that leads to life and to avoid the traps and the snares of death. This one is most important. And as I've grown in my understanding of God's word, as I've grown in my understanding of God's world, as I've grown in my understanding of humanity and what we are and how we act, I've come to understand better why this is so important. In fact, as Jesus says, the most important of all of the commands. If we do not keep this commandment, we cannot function as human beings. Everything in our life Everything in our society will fall apart without this commandment. And let me explain why. Let me explain how to the best of my ability. As we have studied together with the teenagers here on Fridays in our homeschool co-op class on philosophy, the last 500 years of humanistic philosophy, that is secular philosophy, where man tries to start with his own reason, start with his own self, and to work his way towards ultimate value, ultimate meaning, towards wisdom and understanding. The last 500 years of human thinking have demonstrated the failure of mankind to find meaning, to find ethics, to find objective truth, to find value in human life apart from the first commandment. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The philosophers have come one after the other, trying to find something to put into the highest place other than God Most High. And being humanists, they've tried to find something in human beings that they could put in that place. They began by putting reason in that place. Rene Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am, elevating human reasoning to the primary position, the most important aspect by which then from reason we would be able to come to everything else that is important. Knowledge, wisdom, a knowledge of right and wrong and ethics, uh, a good society, human flourishing, and that has failed. It didn't take the philosophers all that long to find out that human reasoning, apart from God, is not able to provide the answers that the soul needs. Immanuel Kant wrote his critique of pure reason, demonstrating the folly of deifying reason. You cannot put reason in God's place. Human reason cannot stand, and it will not provide the strength that the human soul needs. Then they tried deifying the human will, existentialist philosophy. That has also failed to produce wisdom and knowledge. They tried deifying human experience or emotion, and that has led to dead ends as well. They have made an idol of every part of humanity that they can think of and have come up empty, devoid of meaning, devoid of a unifying principle. And I want you to notice that here in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, that the greatest commandment is prefaced by a statement that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism is essential to any objective knowledge and wisdom in the universe. The last 500 years of human philosophy have demonstrated that without ethical monotheism, without understanding that there is one God, not many gods, you cannot have objective morality or truth. Why is everything so fragmented in our culture? Why have we come to the place where everyone decides for himself what is right? Where everyone makes up their own meaning for their life? Where anyone can even create their own identity for themselves in contradistinction to science? Well, it's because they have rejected the love of God. They have rejected ethical monotheism. They have tried to deify some aspect of the creation. But the creation is not a unity. The creation is many things. And we are made up of many parts. And there's nothing in creation that can take God's place. And as we reject the knowledge of the Creator and worship and serve the creation, as it says in Romans chapter 1, then we become very fragmented, where we all just have to choose some lesser deity to serve. You go back to the ancient Romans and the ancient Greeks. There were gods of childbirth, gods of the afterlife, gods of war, gods of marriage and love, and, and all the different things that human beings strive for, and, and you would pick and choose which god you wanted to serve. If you're a sailor, well, then you worship and serve Poseidon so that you don't die out on the ocean. But see how fragmented all of that is. You, you get to pick and choose the god that you're going to serve based upon your desires. But there's nothing that unites humanity together. There's nothing that stands over humanity and provides a purpose for all of the disparate elements within the world and all of the disparate people who are in the world. You see, without monotheism, you have chaos where everyone decides for themselves what is valuable 
Everyone decides for themselves what is ethical. Everyone decides for themselves what is true. And that produces anarchy and chaos and war and strife and envy and every evil thing that you see in our society. When God began to teach the people of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was a foundational, philosophical, theological principle that is completely essential for a functioning society. I think sometimes we take for granted how important monotheism is. Humanistic, atheistic philosophy is of necessity polytheistic. And the culture that we are in, entering into now, as monotheism has been rejected, and the ideas of the atheistic and secular philosophers have been perpetrated, indoctrinated into the minds of the young, is a world that is polytheistic in its morality. The same morality that existed among the ancient Romans is the same morality that you see existing in the West today. And this is coming out of our view of God. It all comes out of monotheism versus polytheism. What is monotheism? Monotheism teaches that God is the creator of all things. And here I'm borrowing a a definition from a website, crgsoft.com. God is the creator of all things and responsible for the maintenance of the universe. God is understood as a single entity, indivisible, and above all, singular, irreplaceable, sacred, unattainable, total, and eternal. Everything is in his hands, and he watches everything. You know what the mistake of the secular philosopher is, the atheist philosopher? He thinks that our God is like the other gods. He looks at the gods of the ancient world, like Poseidon or Zeus or any of these, and he says, well, the Christian God is just another one of those. And that's exactly wrong. And that's exactly what God was trying to teach the people of Israel from their very inception, from their very birth as a nation. Why was God so zealous? Why was he so jealous? Why was he so wrathful about idols and polytheism? What's the big deal? Everything depends upon it. Everything hangs on it. The greatest commandment is in light of the unity of God. See, polytheism doesn't lead to objective ethics because it is based upon nature. We reason based upon what we see, what is, and what is is a mixture of nobility and love, but also of hatred and evil. And without God as a standard by which to judge the world that we see, there's no way to differentiate one as being better than the other. Nature can be both cruel and kind. And who are you to say which one is right? There must be a God who is above nature, who can tell us what is good and what is evil so that there can be an objective ethical standard. Polytheism leads to moral relativism, multiculturalism, not to moral absolutes. And it's the hatred of God that causes the people to hate moral absolutes. God has left mankind with this choice. This is the choice that mankind has apart from God. You can have anarchic liberty, where everyone does what's right in their own eyes, or you can have totalitarian authority. Those are the only two ways that a polytheistic society can function. Anarchy or totalitarianism. 
Neither one is good for humanity. Now, when Jesus says we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, quoting from what God inspired Moses to write, he's teaching that no aspect of our soul is ultimate in guiding us to knowledge and wisdom, but all the different aspects of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, the unifying power to bring these together is none other than God himself, Jesus Christ. That only when every power that we have within us is united in love for God are we able to function as human beings as God created us to function. It's going to take not only every part of you, but every part of every part of you. Look at it again there in your text. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The and, the and, the and, four things here that we are to love God with, heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's God's way of saying every major faculty you have, every power that God has created us with. But notice the word all before each one. Not just your mind, your soul, your strength, your heart, but all your soul, all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. So all of your faculties and everything that is in each one of those faculties, this is the greatest commandment. And this is what it means to live as a human being. It's what we were created for. Now, the humanist looks at God demanding worship The humanist looks at God in the Old Testament punishing people for making idols or for going after the Baal of Peor and being vengeful as some kind of petty, narcissistic tyrant who is just self-important and who is cruel. But the theist looks at God's defense of his own glory and the proper worship of God as not the actions of a petty tyrant or a narcissist, but as the actions of a perfectly reasonable God who is above all, that he is truth himself, he is meaning himself, he is goodness itself, he is love itself, he is holiness himself. There's nothing above God. There's no standard above God. There's no disparate elements that God somehow perfectly submits himself to. He is these things. And so to not worship God is to not worship goodness. To not worship God is to not worship love. To not worship God is to not worship holiness. And if you're going to worship something that is not good and not holy and not loving, you will become that. And the world will be destroyed. This is the sad state of the culture and the world that refuses to worship God and God alone. They lose the transcendent All they can do is self-awarely invent their own goodness, their own love, their own holiness, which they know is not, but they just tell themselves it is. The living God is not a man, and it's not unreasonable for him to demand worship. It is, in fact, the most loving thing that he could do. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom." And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. People who don't know God, who think of Him as just another form of Zeus, 
They have no knowledge. They have no wisdom. Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist, he was well known for asking theists in public debate, what ethical thing can you as a theist do that I can't do as an atheist? And of course, there's nothing in our human relationships that an atheist can't do that a theist can. Uh, I can be generous, he can be generous, he can be forgiving, I can be forgiving, he can be humble, I can be humble. There's no need in Christopher Hitchens' mind to believe in God or to be a monotheist in, in order to be a good person. And I say, that's true, you're right, Christopher. But you don't have a reason to be able to say that this is good and this isn't. You can do it because it's a societal standard that you've barred from Christianity, but you don't have a reason for it. And you know what happens over time when there's not a reason for something? People stop doing it. How is mankind doing at being good without God? How did it go for the communists in the 20th century? How is it going to go for the socialists in the 21st century? Not well. If you don't have a reason for it, people will just stop doing it. Yeah, they can do it. It's written on their heart. They're created in the image of God. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to take other people's things. But without a reason for it, they're going to say, well, I know it's wrong, but I feel like doing it. And I'm going to do it. And that's what they do. Because they don't fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One, that is insight. And as Proverbs also says in chapter 21, there is no wisdom. There is no understanding. There is no plan against the Lord. This is because, as Paul writes later in Colossians, that it's in Christ, in Him, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you're on a search for wisdom and knowledge and they're all hidden in Christ and you refuse to look in Christ, you can search the world over. You can be the most brilliant person in the world, the most eloquent, the most insightful, the highest IQ. You will never find wisdom and knowledge if you are unwilling to look in the place where God has hidden it. You can look in the whole world for my car and never find it if you don't look in the parking lot. That's where the car is. You have to look there. Wisdom and knowledge are in Christ. You won't find it anywhere else, and they haven't. And they know it. They've given up. They're nihilists. They believe in nothing. Most of the people haven't figured that out yet, but the increase in suicide, the increase in depression, the increase in anxiety, they are feeling it, even if they don't know the reason why. They killed God, and that killed philosophy, and that killed ethics, and that killed art, and that killed the sciences, it's all falling apart. They are, as Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 2, without hope and without God in the world. You see, all of God's commandments protect what is valuable. Don't think of God's commandments as somehow he's fencing you off from something that's good, that you really should have, but God doesn't want you to have it. That's how Satan wants you to think about it. No, the commandments are there to protect what is valuable in your life, in human society, and in God's sight. And what is valuable that is protected in God's Ten Commandments? You shall not kill. Human life is valuable. You shall not steal. The right to private property is valuable. You shall honor your father and your mother, and you shall not commit adultery. Family is important. It's valuable. It needs to be protected. There's nothing that is more valuable than the knowledge of God. 
That needs to be protected. That's why the commandments do not begin with you shall not murder and you shall not steal and you shall not covet and you shall not commit adultery. All those commandments come second. But the first commandments and the first table of the law is no idolatry, no graven images. We have to keep the creator distinct from the creation. We must worship one God and not the many disparate things that God has created as polytheists. That is the most important because it protects what is most valuable and what everything else depends upon. It's not petulance that causes God to hate idolatry. It's love. We had our scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Key verse there in Deuteronomy 4.35. God says, all the things that I showed you, all my power, all my judgment, all my glory, you were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Jesus says, what's the greatest commandment? Well, before I tell you what that is, you need to know what is the foundation, what is the basis for the greatest commandment, and that is that there is one God and only one God. If there were many gods, we wouldn't know what to do. One God would say to do this, another God would say to do that. If there were many gods, they would have different wills, and you'd have to choose which one you wanted to serve, and that would be chaos. But there's one God who is over all, with one will, with one set of commands that do not contradict one another so that we can have unity. See, we can be united. We can love one another because we believe in one God. If you had your God and I had my God, then we'd fight. But we have one God. And so we forgive and we love and we keep the same commandments and we have the same goal and we have the same standard. There's one set of rules that we can play by. Very important. Most important. Essential. So the command is to love. You shall love the Lord your God. The polytheistic gods were not loved. They were feared, they were served, they were supplicated, perhaps even admired, but they were not loved, and certainly not with a whole heart. The second commandment is also a command to love. Jesus quotes here from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. There in Leviticus 19:18, the whole verse, the context says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice how the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself is grounded in the essential unity of God, the character of God, the nature of God. Monotheism is essential to ethics. You cannot have a reason to love your neighbor as yourself unless he is the Lord. And if you don't understand that, I don't blame you. These things get hard to understand. But God tells us what we need to know. And he makes it clear so that even a child knows what is the most important commandment and what will set everything right. Love. Love towards God. Love towards our neighbor. Now, of course, Jesus Christ made it very clear in his parable of the Good Samaritan that your neighbor isn't just somebody that you get along with or somebody that you like or somebody who's within your social circles, but your neighbor is anybody that you come across. Anybody that you come across online, anybody that you come across on the street, anybody that you come across in the grocery store, anybody who lives on your block, anybody who's in your church, your neighbor. Anybody you interact with is your neighbor, and you are to love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now notice this is lesser 
than our love towards God. We are to love God greater than we love ourselves. We are to love God with every power that we have and every component of every power that we have, but our neighbor we just love as ourselves. That means we look out for their interests just like we look out for our best interests. I'm always acting in my best interest. I should always be acting in your best interest. Every single one of you. And that's what you need to do for everyone else in your life. Not just the people you like, not just the people who agree with you, not just the people that are attractive, but even to the ones who hate you. You're going to look out for their best interests the same way you look out for what's in your best interests. There is no commandment greater than these, Jesus says. You see how the Ten Commandments are just extensions of these two. The first table of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second table of the law is love your neighbors yourself. It just gives more specifics about those two commandments. The Ten Commandments give more specific of these two commandments. So you see the genius of Jesus in pulling these two out as the key to understanding. Now the second commandment depends upon the first. That's why it's second. And logical priority, a logical necessity is you can't love your neighbor unless you love God. There will not be ethical behavior in society without a love for God. 1 John 4.21 ties these commandments together as well. It says this, This commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I think when it says must, it's not just saying you should. It's saying that you can't love God if you're not loving your neighbor, your brother, that it's impossible to say, oh, I love God, but I just don't love you, that our love for God is manifested, it is shown, it is put into action by our love for one another. These are connected vitally. Now, I also want to share with you 1 Timothy 1.5. I've got it here in the uh, ESV, but I actually like the NASB because that's what I memorized it in. And it says in the NASB, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. So every Sunday morning when you get together, every Wednesday night when we're here, every time you have family devotions together, you've got to remember what are we trying to do? What's the goal here? The goal is love. That's the goal. And so it's pretty important that we understand what love is. If we don't know what love is, then we're going to miss the mark on the goal. And so that's why Jesus Christ has taught us. He has shown us what love is. Jesus said, there's no greater love than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. And so what are you doing to lay down your life for the brethren? Are you willing to give time? Are you willing to give money? Are you willing to be a listening ear? Are you willing to speak the truth? Are you willing to put a stop over your mouth from saying things that are going to be hurtful and harmful? A multitude of ways that our love for one another must be shown and must be demonstrated. And that's the goal of everything. God looks at your family, God looks at this church, and what does he want to see? He wants to see love. That's really all he cares about. He wants to see love. The goal of our instruction is love. Do this and you will live. Come with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. This is going to be a key to understanding what Jesus says next back in Mark. 
So we've got Jesus' answer there. The scribe agrees with Jesus. And I want to look at Luke 10, verses 25 to 28, okay? So here, a most well-known, well-loved passage in the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But we're not going to look at the parable. We're just going to look at what introduces it. And it's very similar to what we have in Mark chapter 12. Behold, a lawyer, not the same one, stood up to test the Lord Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, there's an important question, right? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus answers the question with a question. Well, what do you think? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, hold up the mirror to look at your heart and look at your life. How are you doing? How have you done at keeping these two commandments? Have you loved God with all of your heart? Have you loved God with all of your strength, every bit of power that God has given to you? Have you loved God with all of your mind? Has every power and every faculty that God has given to you been engaged in loving God? And I think as all of us are able to say, no, I've done a lousy job of doing that. And the second commandment, I've probably done a lousy job on that one too. Why doesn't that bother us more? Isn't it logical to say that if this is the greatest commandment, then not keeping it would be the greatest sin? If you're breaking the greatest commandment, the most important, the foremost, that should bother you. But why doesn't it? Well, we tell ourselves, well, no one does. It doesn't seem very reasonable for God to punish me for doing something that, that everyone fails at. It doesn't seem like God would be so cruel and tyrannical as to send everybody to hell. God will punish, according to just desert, those who break the greatest commandments. There's no safety in numbers. Don't let that lie deceive your soul. Come back with me to Mark chapter 12. I want you to feel uncomfortable. I want you to feel fearful. I want you to tremble before the God who is the judge of the universe and who sees how many times and how you have failed to keep the most important commandment and the second. And so the scribe, he answers back in verses 32 and 33. He says, you're right. You have said it beautifully. It's true. He's one. So this again, re-emphasis on monotheism, the unity of God. There's no other besides him. To love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus, he saw that he answered wisely, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. There's a great sermon preached on that. Near is not near enough. Why is he not far from the kingdom of God? Once you understand the law and the purpose of the law, then you are in a position where you are able to understand that you have not kept the law. 
and that you are under the condemnation of the law and that the penalty for breaking this commandment is death. You are also in a position to recognize that there's nothing that you can do to remedy the situation. That you are guilty and that you are hopeless in yourself. And that is the position that you need to be in to be able to understand the work of Christ. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. It was to teach us who we are and what we were created to be and how far short we have all fallen of that and how if there was going to be any remedy, there would be any hope, it would only be in the grace and mercy of God. When he says that to love God with all that is in you is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices, he's quoting from the Old Testament. There's many passages I could have put up that have this same teaching, this same idea, but I always go back to 1 Samuel 15 where Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. The psalmist said, David, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The law comes in to break you. And then the gospel comes in to restore you, to heal you. Now, Jesus said, do this and you will live, when he was speaking to a different lawyer there in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and 28. Well, here's the thing. You haven't done it and you won't live. But the blood of Jesus Christ is able to wipe out all the times that you have failed to keep God's commandment, to love him with all that is in you. And Jesus Christ said, this do in remembrance of me. So when we come to the communion table, what we are doing is recognizing that because we have broken God's law, we deserve death. But that Jesus Christ took our death upon himself to pay for your crimes against the Most High. And he did so out of love. No greater love has any man than this that he laid down his life for his friends and he has called you who have hated him, who have rejected him, who have rebelled against him, who have cast his law behind your back, he has called you his friend and he has died for you. Do this and you will live. And you know what? That's still true. Now that your sins are wiped out, now that you're free from the death that you deserved, now you're free to do this. You're free to love God, and you're free to love your neighbor. And if you do it, you'll live. You'll have the fullness of joy. You'll have the fullness of peace. You'll know what it's meant to be a human being and what God created you for. You will live when you love God and love your neighbor. That is a wonderful life to live, and it's all possible because of God's grace in Christ. After this, no one dared to ask Jesus any questions. So, there is a command to be obeyed here. 
That's a pretty obvious application as we put our specs on this morning. This is not just Old Testament stuff. Well, that was for the Jews back then, but now in Christ, you know, we're antinomian and we just all do whatever we want and God's grace covers it and we're going to heaven. No, that's not what the New Testament teaches. It's not what Christ taught and it's not what a Christian believes. This is still the ethical instruction for the church. This is still rule number one and rule number two. This is still our north star, our guiding light, that we, we say we evaluate ourselves as individuals, as a community. How are we doing on loving God with everything we have? And how are we doing at loving one another the same way we look out for our own interests? You find this in the New Testament, many places. Romans 13 is one of my favorites. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is still the ethical instruction for the church today. New Testament, Old Testament, this hasn't changed as we've come into the New Covenant. A few other verses here in conclusion. People get really confused about law and love. And they think that there's this dichotomy between law and love. But Jesus says, obedience and love are intertwined. They are dependent upon one another. And having a high ethical standard is not legalism. Because Jesus taught us, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When you come to the Bible and it has such a high ethical standard and has commands that are so seemingly impossible, God will give you the strength to do what you can't do by yourself. We're not trying to lower the standard and say, okay, now we can all feel good about ourselves. We're all living as good humanists. We're trying to raise up the standard. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're striving to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't just say, well, nobody does that, so it's okay if I don't try. No, it's not okay for you not to try. Your purpose in life is to try. You wake up and you're breathing and you're eating to do this. This is your life. That's not legalism. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. There's no dichotomy between love and obedience, between love and law. In fact, the only way you can know if you love God is if you are keeping his commandments. Jesus said again, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. And this isn't new with Jesus, but it's also there in Moses. Deuteronomy repeats this over and over again. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and what? Keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. Love and keeping God's commandments, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, are coterminal. You can't have one without the other. There is such a thing as legalism, but a high moral standard is not one of them. There is such a thing as legalism, but keeping God's commandments is not legalism. That's love for God. Legalism is thinking you can be justified by keeping the law or by thinking that mere outward actions are sufficient 
or by creating rules that are not God's rules and adding them to God's rules. All of those are bad ideas. But obedience to God's commandments and striving to be perfect is not legalism. That is being a Christian. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, Creator, Lord of all, it is right for our hearts to worship You in the highest place and to put no one else and nothing else beside You or in front of You or anywhere near You because You alone are God. You alone are worthy of our worship. And You are the one who provides meaning You are the one by which we judge all things and can discern the difference between what is good and what is evil. You are our standard. You are our hope and our truth and it's right for us to worship you with our whole heart and to manifest that wholehearted worship in obedience to all of your good commands which are given to us to protect all of the wonderful gifts that you have entrusted to us as part of your creation and as a part of your redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Father, keep idols far away from our hearts and help us to understand you as you are and not to think of you as the pagans think about their gods. Lord, we know that the life of our church, the life of our families, and the life of each individual in this room depends upon keeping first things first. You are first. Amen.